Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm with our Editor-in-Chief, Mark Alley, once again. Hey, how are you doing? I'm all right, Mark. How are you? I'm in panic mode. You're in panic mode? It's August 21st or 22nd or August... We're days away from your birthday? Well, there's that, but also it's the end of summer, which means all the summer projects I had planned to get done have to get done in the next nine days or 10 days. I know. And that's probably how you don't want to spend your summer too. You want to probably like go fishing instead. Exactly. Yep. All right. Who is joining us today? Joining us today is Aaron Wren. He's a writer on uh, urban policy in a number of quite well-known outlets. But uh, more importantly for this podcast, he is the publisher of The Masculinist. It's a newsletter that I've just discovered. And, uh, We'll talk about some of the content of that, but it's one of the more uh, interesting and insightful newsletters I've read on this business of men and church. So welcome, Aaron. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate the kind words about the masculinist, too. Aaron, just a little background. How did you decide to start this newsletter? Well, it was a combination of factors. Uh, One, just the kind of well-known fact that uh, the attendance of church skews female uh, you know, it's as high as 60-40. You know, the exact stats depend on on the source you look at. But whatever the case, the church skews female. So it's been well known, I think, it talked about for, for quite a while. And that hadn't really been successfully addressed. But what I saw was a number of these secular movements that were having an incredible attractive power to young men. Jordan Peterson is probably the most famous uh, but there were a number of other people who were attracting uh, attracting a lot of young men. There's a, a conservative political commentator named Ben Shapiro, who's got quite a following among young people. There was a, a guy for a while, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, who made a big splash. There, there are a range of these things. Some of them, you would say, were, were the alt-right, which got a lot of, uh, of press. Others were you know, more mainstream, like Peterson. But what was happening is huge numbers of men, especially young men, are really tuning into these people. I mean, I would hear, you know, relatives from rural southern Indiana where I grow up tell me about following some of these online personalities. And I'm like, wow, what is it that all of these people are reaching men with essentially some sort of a a secular self-help message and the church isn't working? And then I think also is somewhat a you know personal experience in that you know when I when I basically became a Christian I, I you know maybe naively just sort of like took everything in and I think it's a good thing that you just kind of listen to what people are teaching and and following it and I felt like the teachings that I were getting uh, about how to be a man and how to to interact with women and things of that nature frankly were just not working I and mean, it was like kind of bad results and I'm like what's going on here. And it caused me to question a lot of things, and then I, I sort of reformulated myself uh, in a lot of ways as as a man, 
And, and so I, I feel like this is a topic that that's for me uh, important. And so this kind of combination of factors really, really prompted it. Well, that's awesome. And I think that you've given our listeners a preview of some of the issues that we're going to be really digging into deeply today. Mark, do you want to kind of give our listeners an overview of what's what's prompting this conversation? As has been referred to already, among the many ongoing concerns of the church and its health is uh, this one characterized by these headlines in recent years. From October 2011, why don't men go to church? That's in the Christian century. Christianity Today itself in the summer of 2012. Why men still hate going to church? What a headline. Pastors.com, March 2014, seven actions to engage men in your church. Uh, USA Today, January 2015, why do men hate church and what can be done about it? And then this summer, CT ran a cover story on men's ministry and how to make them more effective, which is driven by a concern that uh, the church reach out to men in more healthy and better ways. So for many years running now, and this is not, this doesn't even mention the books that have come out on this topic. Uh, there have been two or three very important books on the topic as well in the last 20, 30 years. So for many years running now, a lot of people have been asking a very simple question. Why do men only make up? Now, Aaron just said uh, 40% of the congregation, but frankly, in my anecdotal experience as an Episcopalian and as Presbyterian before I was an Anglican, it's often just 25 to 33% of the of the, well, that's why we have polls. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but I think, but I do think it's uh, the reason why I mentioned those numbers. I do think it's a it's a more challenging uh, figure in uh, in mainline denominations, for example. So, so the question is, why do relatively so few men show up in church as compared to women? Now, some argue that men are put off by the biblical demands for kindness, gentleness, and a life of service. Others say that the church has become feminized, accenting virtues like the above that women warm up to but um, men do not. Some say that the very culture of the church, its emphasis on small group interpersonal relationships, uh, is a turnoff to men. Um, Others still argue that men are just too enamored with a culturally conditioned view of masculinity, so they don't have much sympathy with gospel virtues. So... Today on the podcast, we want to explore this issue that affects many, many churches and see if there's a way forward for churches and for men. Awesome. I'm sure it won't be controversial at all. So exactly. I'm excited about that. <laughs> you know, I always say about this newsletter, I'm not running a safe space. I... Uh, and so that, that was one of my things, like I am going to say things that might get me in trouble in this newsletter. So, I, uh, you know, I'm not going to hesitate to go uh, where I think the evidence leads. All right, good. Heads up to our listeners. Then. <laughs> exactly. All right. So before we get into our not safe space today, let us just remind everyone that you can now support the podcast by donating to morect.com slash podcasts. And that's a great way to show your support for Quick to Listen. You know, we've talked about the fact that Mark and I do various things besides host the podcast here at CT. And Mark, I know that Sometimes there are some years that you go and you meet with other journalists and thought leaders in Florida, if I recall correctly. Yeah. So this last year, I've uh, one of the things I attended is called the Faith Angle Forum, and it's a it's a it is a forum for both religious journalists and secular journalists to come together and talk about how religion uh, issues of importance in the religious community and how they're reported. So we have people there from the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Attic Monthly. We're rubbing elbows with uh, columnists like David Brooks. And it's just a really great place for Christianity today to be at, to listen, first of all, to what their concerns are, what their views are about Christian faith, evangelical faith, but also for us to explain to them how we understand the world 
and hopefully break down a lot of the stereotypes that people have of evangelical Christianity. There's a lot of eating meals together as well, which Mm -hmm. I think is meant to kind of foster a sense of camaraderie. I went to a version of this conference back in June called the Michael Cromartie Forum. Cromartie started the Faith Angle Forum. It's the same idea. It was his vision uh, and his ministry in life. Awesome. So, again, if you want to support the work of Christianity Today and this podcast, go to morect.com slash podcasts. It's morect.com slash podcasts. All right. So, Aaron, we have so many questions for you, and we're excited about this conversation. I just want to ask you one question as we, we start out. You know, Mark read all these different headlines here about men not going to church, but when I was reading through your newsletter earlier this week, it seems that sometimes you're you're concerned about nuancing when we're talking about men by class or race or education level. So are these statements about men not going to church true across all these different diverse demographics? I don't have really good stats on differences between men and women per se by demographics uh, like race uh, or, or, or education. Uh, David Morrow, who uh, wrote uh, that book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, which I think we referenced earlier from 2011, he, he sort of suggests that the skew is, uh, female skew is particularly strong in the black community, uh, almost r- raised the specter of parallel religions, Christianity for women and Islam for men. You know, I don't have, I don't have a good stat on it. I will say that it, in general, contrary to popular belief, it's the more educated people who tend to attend church, not less educated people in general. There are also, uh, I think, as Mark alluded to, my my impression is that things are different by denomination uh, in terms of this. I have also observed that uh, mainline, traditional mainline denominations tend to have far fewer men in the pews. There's a Lutheran church right around the corner from me uh, that I've gone to, and there are men there, but they're almost all there with their families. I don't think I saw a single man in the church who was under the age of 65 years old, who was just there by himself. Leon Podels, who wrote a book called The Church Impotent, one of the books that's been written on this topic, he suggested that the Eastern churches, the Eastern Orthodox churches, actually have a fairly even split of male-female attendance. I'm not so sure that I, I buy that, but he made that claim, and there, there may be much, much more commonality there. And then I think if you, if we just broaden the lens, I think what we would see is if we look outside the Christian religion, other religions do not necessarily suffer from the skew. If you think about what image comes to your mind when you think of Islam, it's probably a group of men praying in one of their prayers. So if you think about what, what is your image of Orthodox Judaism, it's probably a men's prayer group of some sort. Or you think about the Buddhist monks who are men. And a lot of these other religions maintain a sort of formal partition between male and female practice uh, that, you know, possibly is a contributor. But it, I think it's interesting that if you if you look at these other religions, both just what we what, what comes to mind in the data suggests that may, they don't have this gap in the way that Christianity does. Aaron, how far can we trace back this disparity in men and women attending church? It depends on who you ask. Uh, that Leon Podol's guy in The Church Impotent, he sort of asserts that it goes back to the high Middle Ages, maybe the 12th or 13th century. 
the source that has really, really been a profound influence on me, as well as many other people, is uh, Charles Taylor uh, in his book, A Secular Age. He actually talks a, a bit about this in his book, and he sort of sees this split starting to emerge in the late 18th century, that is the late 1700s, and then really accelerating through the 19th century. Callum Brown, who wrote a, uh, a book called The Death of Christian Britain, 1800 to 2000, he also shows a pretty profound shift in the nature of Christianity starting around the year 1800. There were a lot of things going on in that era. One of the things that happened, which you can learn from Taylor, is, is the rise of what he called civility and like changes in the standards of civilized behavior and sort of the end of the social acceptance of some of this, you know, rowdiness or just as you can think about the medieval times restaurant with people just grabbing, you know, huge turkey legs and gnawing down on them and stuff. A lot of what we think of as civilized behavior started to come about during that time frame, which started to go against traditional kind of male rowdiness. And then there is another really profound shift in the nature of the economy. We went from essentially a pre-industrial society to an industrial society. And this is one of the most profound shifts in the modern age that, that we really haven't grappled with in all its dimensions uh, as a church. There's a great book that's unfortunately out of print, but it's called Man and Woman in Christ by Stephen B. Clark. And in sort of pre-industrial society, which is uh, really what the Bible was essentially written in a, in a backdrop of pre-industrial society, the household was much more than just the family as we think of it today. The household was the place where economic production took place. It was the place where education took place in vocational training, health care, uh, the social safety net was part of the extended family household. The administration of the community was often done through households and, and guilds and other things of that nature. You know, people like to talk today about Proverbs 31. You think about the Proverbs 31 woman. If, if you read that, you very much get this sense of that type of a household, right, where her husband is at the gates of the city, sort of helping to administer the city, and she is helping to oversee this vast productive enterprise. Well, we move from that world into essentially an industrial world where people, you know, we move to a more nuclear family model, and we move to a model where many of the functions of the household were essentially um, stripped away. The economy moved to the factory or to the marketplace. We gradually had the creation of schools, public schools, educations moving into that. People moved to the cities. They moved away from a lot of these extended family networks. So a lot of this transition, I believe, sets the stage for a very different mode of life, much more regimented, organized, et cetera, that really changed expectations around, around family, around behavior related to gender. And it's kind of as all this is going on, the Industrial Revolution, the rise of kind of civilized behaviors and norms that all starts to hit, especially it's coming together around 1800 and moving forward, I would say, is, is kind of the root of what we see today. Hey, this is Morgan from Quick to Listen, and today we are talking with Michelle Qureshi. Michelle was married to the late apologist Nabil Qureshi, and the third edition of his memoir, 
Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus is out now. So, Michelle, I have a question for you. How did you and Nabil meet? We met at Passion 2007. It's a Christian conference for 18 to 25-year-olds. I was going to school in Connecticut. He was going to school in Virginia. So, obviously, it made sense that we met in Atlanta, Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) The truth of it is I noticed him (laughs) first. And so he would then jump in and say, well, but of course I was there to worship God. (laughs) But I had, I was just going because I I had heard about what kind of a conference it was and wanted to experience it. You know, 25,000, 18 to 25 year olds worshiping God. So we met under um, a mutual desire to get closer to God. So I had to go back to Connecticut. He had to go back to Virginia at the end of the conference and then I kind of not so subtly emailed him first. <laughs> but that started a chain that didn't stop. Michelle was married to the late apologist Nabil Qureshi. The third edition of his memoir, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, is available to order now. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. So, as as we know, most of church leadership for all of history has been male-led. Not to say that women haven't been church leaders, but men are more disproportionately likely to be pastors, for instance. And so given that many of them were in these particular leadership roles as all these demographic changes were happening, what do you make of it, Aaron, that these um, male leaders were having difficulty connecting with men? It's interesting. Totals in, in the church impotent, one of the things that he points out is that really it tended to be the less masculine men who were attracted into the ministry and that different psychological studies you know, of pastors and things have found them, you know, in a sense, kind of the least masculine of some of the professions. There's another book by uh, Ann Douglas from Columbia University called The Feminization of American Culture. And she, you know, essentially uh, draws two two strands towards some of this, one coming out of essentially the mainline ministry and the other com- coming out of women. And they, they, were, they were sort of paired together. The ministry was seen as essentially a respite from the, the, the more rough and tumble masculine uh, milieu, maybe not in you know the Middle Ages or something of that nature, but, but in sort of the same time frame at which this is going on. It's also the case that in, in many cases, yes, the, you know, the lead pastor may be a man, but 
everything else in the church, all the volunteer committee, everything is essentially churches are very female dominated organizations, I think, in, in a lot of ways, uh, in terms of a lot of what makes it go, even if the lead the lead pastor is 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 male. And then we see, of course, in the mainline denominations, you're you're as likely to see, or maybe even more likely to see a female pastor today. I will say anecdotally, I remember when I was uh studying for the ministry, I was in seminary or I just graduated. I remember, I remember my mom making a disparaging remark about saying comparing what the type of world I was in and the real world. Right. And mine was kind of like a protected world, even though she didn't know I was dealing with people who were dying on their dying beds, people were confessing to me all sorts of raunchous sins. But the perception was that religion is a safe space away from the from the toughness of life and if you really want to get involved in the in real life, uh, you wouldn't you you do something else besides religions. I'm kind of reminded there's a there's an episode of The Sopranos, uh, you know, where you know Tony Soprano he's off doing all his male mobster things, and uh, his wife is hanging out at home drinking wine with the priest. And right. It's, so they they sort of develop a little bit of a friendship that becomes romantic, but it's like he's hanging out with the mobsters' wives while they're out whacking people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean that's that's the that's what I envisioned in men's ministry in the church. Like the mob. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if we could just turn the church into more like a mob, then we'd have more men, I suppose. Yeah, Aaron, I do want to get into some of the stuff that you wrote in your newsletter, though, when it talks about how there was this societal understanding, and, and potentially there still is this societal understanding, that women, to some extent, exist to domesticate men, and where that idea came from um, that allows women at times to be unfairly held up as, you know, paragons of virtue and men to kind of represent, you know, all the sin that's in the world. Yeah, this is really the point of Callum Brown's book, which is really about how Britain secularized. His thesis on secularization is that there's essentially a unity between feminine identity and Christian identity. That is, women saw part of their identity as a woman as being a pious, faithful Christian person. And when in the 1960s, women ceased to unify their their Christian and female identities, Christianity suffered a a catastrophic collapse. But his point is, you know, essentially, like prior to 1800, you know, we would think of an angel, you would think of an angel as a male figure. Even in the Bible, we think about Archangel Gabriel or Michael. Whereas today we tend to think about who would you describe as angelic? Probably a more of a female image that we think of as angelic. And so, so piety shifted from sort of a, male, a little bit of a male to a female register. And he goes through a lot of the evangelical writings in Britain and just finds that essentially the, a lot of the stories, the fictional stories, essentially were about very pious women who were being victimized by these evil, drunken men who were always off gambling and carousing. His quote was, nowhere did evangelical literature have such a powerful influence in the public domain, including in secular fiction, as in its demonization of men. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville also sort of located moral virtue uh, in the woman. A lot of the uh, social reform movements, like the temperance movement, uh, were sort of women's movements. So uh, there was this this sort of idea that you know women were essentially somewhat naturally virtuous they didn't have tremendous struggles with sin 
men on the contrast really had to overcome sin in, in order to to become Christian. Often in, in, the, in, in that era, it was drink, drinking and gambling and fighting were the things that they, they struggled with. And, you know, this is this is something that we continue to see at some level to to the present day. I, I noted this uh, article in First Things from very recently by Glenn Stanton from Focus on the Family, who says things like, you know, manners exist because women exist. Worthy men adjust their behaviors when a woman comes into the room. They become better creatures. He got some pushback on this, but I think that is sort of the idea is that getting married and settling down and having a good woman in your life is part of how you civilize the male. That's definitely the view I think that's predominantly in the church. That is often the case. It's certainly the case in my, my when it comes to social skills and public behavior. Yeah, and that's why I think it goes back to what Aaron was talking about with the Industrial Revolution, societal expectations of behavior, right? Yeah, right. right. Me and my uh, male friends often credit our wives with helping us kind of learn how to dress better and how to act better in public and not pick our nose and not interrupt people and— so at one level, there's something it really resonates, uh, but at another level, I can see I can see how pernicious it, it, it is and how it misrepresents a full what a full woman is. Obviously, look, we we complement each other. You know, I would hope that that men and women would help make each other better. I would say men's men's misbehavior gets widely played up. Women's misbehavior, uh, not nearly so much. You might have possibly seen got a little bit of press that this woman here in New York set up Tinder dates with, I think, dozens or maybe even over 100 men and made dates with them all at the same time in the same place. And it was part of a viral marketing stunt to get them to show up at this event. I think that's just going to kind of be laughed off. But I mean, think about that kind of behavior. Is is that appropriate behavior? I I don't think that it is. Or you'll occasionally read the articles about you know, women using Tinder to just get free meals and just boasting of getting free meals from people. But, you know, that'll get the occasional press, but it doesn't get this. It's not treated. It's always treated as a one-off event, whereas every kind of male misbehavior is treated as kind of this, here's another example of men behaving badly. And so I do think there's a sense in which the church uh, has been, I think, appropriately uh, willing to call out bad male behavior, but has essentially even even some incredibly bad behavior by women the church essentially refuses to, to to call it out sometimes i think it's just so interesting to think about this idea of like piety being a gendered issue one famous story is is out of david morrow's book about men going to church he, he created these two lists of characteristics and asked people in the church which one he thought better represented jesus and they were the list of male and female characteristics that he took from the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And people overwhelmingly picked the female list as much more representative of Jesus. So I think that was an interesting kind of, you know, maybe a little hokey shows today's thinking. Wow. Well, I I think that it's just so interesting to think about how expectations or moral expectations, Christian moral expectations would also like correlate with attributes that we generally affiliate with one gender or another and trying to think about which one of those came first? I think back to the Middle Ages. My memory says that most of the, many of the mystical figures we uh, admire from this day, Teresa of Avila, among others, were females. So or they were, at least it seemed to be equally represented among males so in terms of this notion of having an intuitive, mystical, personal relationship with, with God. It seemed to be uh, able to be accessed by both men and women 
uh, equally in the Middle Ages. There was always concern among the church leaders that the women would become too emotional and be carried off by their emotions. At the same time, men tended to be carried off by their the theology that resulted from that, and they started sex and other heresies and stuff like that. So there, those are the concerns there. I wonder, I also think of Augustine's story uh, of his, it was his mother who raised him, tried to raise him as a Catholic boy and uh, didn't succeed in that, but he looks to her as a, as this virtuous figure in his family who is, who is faithful to Christ and maintaining a Christian character. And she's still kind of held up in the church in that way too. Yeah. And then of course in the Catholic church, Mary is the, uh, is the human example par excellence of faithfulness to, to God. You know, when you read in the Bible or in the New Testament, or you read about the kind of the the early church, you know, pre-Constantinian church, I mean, I think it's very easy to come up with both kind of male and female examples, you know, amply represented there. I do think there is an intrinsic attraction of Christianity to women right from the beginning because of the relative freedom it gave women in the, in that particular culture especially in their first century church. And it's continued to be so, where, where both men and women are created in the image of God. There is not a sec- they're not second-class citizens ever. So there is one, in one sense, the Christian faith is very attractive to anyone who, has, who lives in a society where there are oppressed classes. Theoretically, uh, any of the oppressed classes that they hear the gospel are going to be much more attracted to it. Uh, and there, I think there is something really true about the fact that I think men— uh, have a, a kind of uh, both psychological and physical energy uh, and aggressiveness that I, I actually think is a divine gift. But it makes it harder for men to imbibe, in my experience, imbibe the admonitions to gentleness and kindness and compassion sometimes. So I do think there's something intrinsic in the Christian faith that makes it more of a challenge to men, but uh, I'm not ready to wave the white flag. And I still think there are things that church has been doing that is a detriment to reaching out to men and could do I could do more to it. So I'm curious, given that you've talked about this disparity in how men are kind of demonized for their sins and when they mess up, it's part of who men are overall, whereas when women mess up, it's just kind of seen potentially as something to laugh off. What is a better way for churches to t- teach, you know, theology of sin that's kind of I don't know if the right word is blind to gender, but definitely not having those types of blind spots that we're talking about. Yeah, that, that's a broad question. It, it, it's difficult uh, to come up with with, a, with an exact answer. But I think in, you know people ought to think, pastors ought to think about behaviors that they have and the things that they say uh, in equivalent situations. I mean, one of the most famous is if you ever go to church on Mother's Day, uh, which I have, I have never heard a single negative thing about mothers ever said on Mother's Day. You know, you go to church on Father's Day, you know, sometimes you'll hear an outright sermon on how bad dads are screwing up and how we need to be better and, you know, all shucks. Or certainly you'll hear something about, and oh, and please be with all the people who've been harmed by their fathers or something like that. You know, I've essentially given up on on the fact that you, you, you know there's there's going to be anything there. And, and to be honest, it's uh, it's one of the easiest venues to see because you have two uh, you know holidays that are designed to you know in theory honor fathers and mothers, honor your father and your mother. But the way that that's carried out is is very different. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a day where we celebrate you know mothers or celebrate fathers and we say nice things about them. 
right? On, on, when, we, when we celebrate someone's birthday, we celebrate them. We don't necessarily talk about, oh, let me tell you about the time you screwed up last week. <laughs> so I think, you know, one day a year, maybe we could just like unconditionally honor fathers. You know, I'm not saying you have to say bad things about mothers. I wouldn't advocate that on Mother's Day. I wouldn't think it would be appropriate. You know, why can't we just like honor fathers on Father's Day uh, instead of dishonoring them in front of their own families? I mean, that would be like one simple, easy to understand thing you could do that would be actionable. It seems like for that, that would be helpful, especially for the fathers that are coming to church with their families. But you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that it's often really hard to find single men at churches. What what do you think is behind that in particular? Uh, I think Borough even said that something like uh, you know a quarter up to a quarter of women who are married are attending church without their without her husband. So there is this sense to which a lot of men today in kind of the domestic sphere kind of go along with their kind of wife's leadership in a lot of things. I mean, what I see is generally the wife is that even if they're married couples, the wife is often the determinant of where the family goes to church. That's one. And, you know, yeah, just young men, I, I think they're hungry. They're hungry for something because they're turning to Jordan Peterson and people like that, but they're not finding it in church for whatever for whatever reason. So exactly, again, there's all these theories, you know, Moro's theory. There's different theories in these different books. I, I don't want to pretend to have the answer because one of the things I talk about is, you know, I'm not the first person ever heard of this problem, right? I mean, this has been talked about like 100 years ago, and they invented things like the YMCA and the Boy Scouts, and there was this muscular Christianity movement, and didn't work. So I don't want to. I, I want to have a little humility about what I know and I don't know uh, with my with my newsletter, is I tried to incorporate some of what I see as the characteristics of these secular people that have attracted men. One of them is that they are very willing to say things that go against the consensus of society at some level. Uh, Jordan Peterson, his famous Channel 4 interview, where he has this you know, announcer that's sort of attacking him, and he just holds his ground. That's very attractive to men, to see another man stand up courageously, hold his ground in that way. The danger is, I think, that too often the people who are most likely to kind of transgress the social boundaries are people who have kind of crackpot ideas. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they're telling the truth. But I think this idea that people are willing to be a little more courageous has been one of their their secrets to success. You know, we could talk maybe more about kind of failed men's ministries. Mark Driscoll uh, at Marisville, Seattle, famously attracted a lot of men, and he self-consciously, I think, was a little bit of a bad boy, thinking that would be uh, be attractive, and maybe he was correct on that. The other thing that they do, especially with Peterson, is they give a lot of practical advice that helps men get better. And so that's also something I've tried to do. I talk about, like, here, here's drills you can do to help you improve making strong eye contact with people or improving your posture, establishing your prayer life. How do you build a relationship with someone you want to build a relationship with? So I, I try to go and provide a lot of practical advice. Maybe that's not appropriate in a church for someone who's supposed to be sticking to the Bible to do. I don't know. But I see those two things as very much things that these secular people who are attracting men are doing. And I don't see it as much in the church. And, you know, so that would be as close as I can get to to some suggestions and maybe some things that are missing in terms of attracting men. Yeah, I wonder if that's the ex explanation for the popularity of the uh, website, uh, The Art of Manliness. 
uh, I was attracted to it early on, and it struck me that it was a site that was being a surrogate father for a lot of men whose fathers didn't teach them a lot of what we'd call the basic social and human skills that men, you know, ought to know, I suppose. Well, I, I agree completely. Art of Manliness is, you know, it's a pretty safe site. But okay, and, and interestingly, he's Mormon, and a lot of these, a lot of these um, very popular uh, sites are run by Mormons. Kinfolk Magazine was started by Mormons. A lot of the most popular and famous uh, kind of mommy bloggers were Mormons. They've got a real gift. <laughs> they got a real gift at sort of building these sort of sites. But he is—he's—he's he's very practical. Here's how you do X. Here's how you tie a tie. Here's different wisdom from different leaders. Jordan Peterson is the same way. I said, you know, I just I just call it his folk wisdom. A lot of what Jordan Peterson is telling people are folk wisdom. It's stuff. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. I think that's his first rule from his 12 rules. It is. Yes. Uh-huh. Your father, your grandfather would have told you when you were a boy, you know, not that long ago. And I think that because a lot of these guys give, you know, basic banal but useful advice, people are like, wow, this guy's a prophet. And then they start listening to their, uh, you know, non-Christian viewpoints, which may be off. They may be very off metaphysically and morally in many ways. You know, art of manliness is, is you know, it's, it's not a Christian site, but, you know, it's not a toxic site, you know, either. But there are other places that could they could end you up in a, in a very in a very negative place. So I think they, they've definitely drawn people in by just saying, like, here's stuff that, like, nobody ever taught you. At least in the case of Peterson, I don't know if it was the, is the case of Shapiro, certainly in the case of Art of Manliness, is oftentimes these men, these, these, these uh, secular leaders have started to be attractive to men, but they weren't trying to do that. Peterson certainly wasn't. He was just shocked to find the number of young men who were starting to read his stuff. So, and I do think one of the problems, uh, certainly my, my personal reaction to any time a church says we're now going to do something manly for men, I'm always deeply worried right off the bat. <laughs> it's going to be awkward. It's going to be, a, it's going to be a stereotypical kind of approach to men that doesn't really get to the core issues. It's going to be about men, I don't know, doing weird, crazy things. Uh, so you got some of that in the promise keepers movement and it's just stuff you go and they go, no, that's not, that's not what we're talking about guys. We're not talking about doing playing Frisbee or going down big slides or anything like that. One of the things that is notable about a lot of these guys, when I talk about their their willingness to say things that'll get them in trouble, they largely do at some level model what they talk about, right? So if you if you think about Jordan Peterson, what he tells men to do, and kind of how he conducts himself, it seems to be basically congruent. I, I don't see his personal life and these things. You know, this this Ben Shapiro guy, who's not really a guy that I follow, but he's always going on to campuses. Uh, and there's people protesting him and things of that nature. So he's kind of getting in there in the mix. And so a, a lot of them, I think, uh, not Peterson, but a lot of them actually seek out conflict with other, with other groups. And in that conflict, that allow, that provides them a venue to demonstrate that they are capable of holding their ground in that sort of an adversarial environment. One of the things is just, look, are people actually living in a sort of a manly way themselves? That, I think, is, is part of it. Yeah, you hit on something important when you brought up conflict, and that for a certain percentage of the population, and maybe this is disproportionately men, if conflict does not 
come up, if you don't see conflict, if it's not something that's acknowledged and necessarily even kind of blown up in a bigger degree, it can maybe feel emotionally or intellectually dishonest and disingenuous to a particular degree. And yeah, I've never really thought of that as being something that would attract people in and of itself, aside from, you know, watching sports or something where there's competition and there's a version of that conflict. But in many ways, a church service often comes off as very sanitized from conflict, not something that is actively looking to raise the temperature of the room, so to speak. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of Christian advice in the midst of conflict is about uh, sublimating the conflict in one way or another instead of addressing it. So that is part of our Christian subculture. And when we do talk about people in the Bible, um, we do emphasize, and rightly so, we emphasize Christ's sacrificial death on the cross and uh, turning the other cheek. But there's also plenty of examples even in Jesus' life of just standing up to authority and actually getting in their face at times. I went through and I wrote down every single conflict that uh, Christ was engaged in in his life. And uh, the only cases where I would say his response was to turn the other cheek was during the passion narrative. Right. Up until then, no, he just stood right up. Yeah. Yeah. In most other cases, he didn't start it, but he always finished it. And I mean, the fair, he was so brutal to the Pharisees. It's unbelievable some of the things that he would say. I'm like, man, no pastor today is going to say that stuff to people who are, you know, coming after him. So he was not afraid. He held his ground very strongly in most cases. Yeah, well, I would even go far as to say he sometimes started the started the conflict. That is to say, I remember the uh, the passage in Mark where he's in a synagogue and he sees some Pharisees there, and there's a crippled man in the uh, in the in the congregation in the synagogue, and uh, he deliberately asks, "Is it you know?" He provokes them. Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? And they're mumbling and not knowing what to say. And he goes ahead and he heals this guy, and he, he just he provokes them. <laughs> So that sort of provoking of injustice and uh, sin is part of the Christian repertoire of ethics that we should be taught, but we're not taught that very often. Uh, And Jesus is a model of that, that requires discernment as to when you do turn the other cheek and when you do push the button, but it's part of the repertoire of Christian ethics that I think is woefully inadequate right now. Right. I mean, he was definitely very compassionate towards people who were hurting, who were sick, uh, who were struggling, you know, he didn't crush people. You know, what's that that line about a smoldering wick I will not put out? But the unrepentant people uh, or, or those who were coming after him full of themselves. He definitely didn't hesitate to uh, to smack down. And then just many of the people who are casual seekers, he almost sort of rebuffed. It's like, OK, go sell everything you own and, and, uh, and give it to the poor and then come follow me. I mean, he wasn't afraid to, like, put out really strong challenges to people. You know, when you're listing all these things, it's hard for me to know if a pastor should somehow model themselves after Jesus in this particular way. Because in my head, I'm trying to think through, like, what are the practical ramifications of how we're seeing Jesus? Because, uh, yeah, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about how the fact that it um, conflict can be a huge way that you unify a particular group of people. And we all know that Jesus had an extremely disparate band of followers. And so to some extent, him picking fights with with a particular group allowed everyone to kind of come together and see each other as almost an us versus them in some ways. Um, 
given that Jesus had to work with so many people that were so different all the time, he had to tell them, no, this is who we are. This is who we are both against in terms of calling out the Pharisees. And this is also who we're for, which then you kind of see in these like more dramatic or these acts of compassion that appear even more dramatic in light of the fact that there are these like really hot spats that he has with other groups. And again, I don't really know what the practical application of that is and if that's appropriate for a pastor. But when you do think of the fact that so much of church service, the most emotional parts of a church service can often be the music, which there's nothing wrong about music being emotional at all, but that there's not some sort of like interpersonal tension or dramatic waves of shocking, surprising, audacious compassion. It's, I guess, understandable that you might kind of feel like church can become rote or that you feel a little bit numb when you go into a church service because there's not that element of spontaneity or turning up the heat in that way. I wrote, I think one of my first books, it was my second book maybe, was was a book called Jesus Meaning Wild, in which I looked at 15 passages from the Gospel of Mark in which Jesus comes across as anything but compassionate, kind, and gentle and tried to understand how the, how these could be nonetheless uh, uh, acts of love. So I do think, uh, and there, there's been other books written on Jesus' mean side as well, but I do think those, those type of books are worth reflecting on to give us a fuller picture of who Christ is. And you're right, if, if a pastor was to act like Jesus, he would be fired or crucified. So the pastor's role is not to be like Jesus necessarily, but something in the church has to happen. If it's not Sunday morning— there's got to be other times when there is this call to something that's bigger and stronger. And Well, and I think, Aaron, you were alluding to this earlier when you talked about this interview that Jordan Peterson did in which there was a um, the interviewer um, felt relatively combative. Many people felt that the interviewer was relatively combative towards Jordan Peterson, and yet Jordan Peterson did not kind of acquiesce or go along. And that's this idea of going off script or going off the cultural script to a particular degree. <laughs> given that most of our churches can feel extremely scripted. And in fact, I have seen the script for different church services where they have everything down to the second of, you know, yeah. when the pastor is going to be praying as the worship team comes on at 10.03 or whatever, you know, then then sure, there's going to be a lack of dynamicism around that. Jordan Peterson, I mean, in a sense, he's maybe a preview of coming attractions. Uh, the most popular thing I wrote in the masculinist by far was an issue called the lost world of, of American evangelicalism. And I talked about kind of this future where we've moved from kind of what I've called the neutral world, which is sort of where the evangelical church loves to live, which is a, a place where essentially Christianity isn't dominant in the culture, uh, but we're sort of, you know, participants in this pluralistic public square. You know, it's one of many valid lifestyle choices uh, among many others, um, sort of not don't really like Christianity, don't necessarily hate it either. And so we're moving into a world, what I, I labeled the negative world, which is where increasingly Christianity is seen as a threat to the social order and the common good as our society sees it. Everybody wants to be able to do, you know, a tap dance and somehow prove that we just be winsome enough, people will like us. Uh, I think in the future, there is certainly possible that to be a Christian, you're going to have to be more comfortable in a mode where you're in somewhat in conflict with the culture, not in a religious right sense of attacking the culture, but maybe in, in the fact that it's pressing in on you. And you have to be competent and maybe like in the early church in a more low status kind of outcast position. And that 
maybe you know maybe the the way that Peterson and some of these other uh, as the New York Times called them intellectual dark web guys are modeling some of the things that Christians are going to have to be more comfortable with in the future uh, if they don't want to compromise their faith. Yeah, it's very interesting to think about what type of ways that we use to convince people. I know CT has their own philosophy about what it yeah, takes. Yeah, no, to... we've definitely been on the—I uh, I felt somewhat convicted, as to use an old evangelical term, when you talked about the, the old way of the way evangelicals— you seem to cast it as the old way of uh, being friendly to the culture and hopefully you win our way through irenicism when you're projecting that that's really not going to be very effective anymore. Well, it may not be. And, and that's, that's uncomfortable for me because I, I always say the law of projection. What are the things that you see in other people that annoy you? Those are probably the things that you're revealing something about yourself. And so I'm, I'm seeing this and I'm like, well, gee, I'm the guy who likes to live in the big city and I'm the guy who likes to drink lattes and, you know, be engaged in the culture. And, and all of the things that I'm talking about are things that like, wow, that's like me. You know, I don't want to be in conflict. And that's one of the things I had to change is I just had to realize, you know, I can't live in fear and I have to just be willing to put myself out there. And that's no guarantee that it, it won't be, it won't get, it won't get ugly. But, I, you know, I, I have to be willing to, Paul talked about, I count all things as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And, you know, things like that sound nice in an era in America where it's like everything's great. But imagine, you know, I, I live where I can take walks in Central Park every day if I want to and all this. And like, what if I actually had to give that up in order to hold my faith? That wouldn't be a very pleasant prospect. But I think it's one of the things that we have to be able to, you know, make the right choice if it comes to it. I'm not saying it will. Maybe for most of us, it never will. But maybe we're going to get put on the spot in a way that we never anticipated it, that we, we would have to get put on the spot. And then how, what are we going to do? Watching Jordan Peterson on Channel 4, <laughs> that might be us one day. That does require your own self-awareness to know what your temperament generally is. If you're a conflict-adverse person, recognizing that it might be helpful for you to learn how to turn up the heat. And if you're someone who has never met a conflict that you didn't run a rush into and bombard <laughs> people with— it's equally helpful to remember that there are, you know, specific admonitions in Scripture about, you know, how really if you don't have love when you're speaking or talking or trying to model something, then it makes no difference than you've spoken out on it at all. We all have to kind of wrestle with those passages of Scripture that we feel are uncomfortable to our communication styles rather than <laughs> just look for a proof text for our personality, right? Great discussion, Aaron. Thank you for talking through all of these very complex issues with us and giving us sociological and historical and theological things to ponder. It's a really great conversation. I do want to tell people that they may have heard references to things that we have talked about on the podcast before. So if you want to listen to episode 95, we talked about muscular Christianity and how it influenced the creation of the Olympics, but it did have some stuff about muscular Christianity on there. If you want to listen to episode 112, we talk about what Christians are to make of Jordan Peterson. And on episode 116, we talk about Charles Taylor and the secular age. So we're making discussed. it sound like we're really with it. We are with it. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. So if people want more in depth stuff about any of that, we've talked about it, guys. We've been on it. And yeah, if you also want to give us feedback for the podcast as well, you can do that. We're on Twitter at CT Podcast, and you can also send us an email, podcast at ChristianityToday.com. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and everyone gets to share something that's bringing them joy. 
Ready, set, go, Mark. Okay. I guess I would uh, point to a, a very simple event, but I, I noticed how much joy it brought me, and that was having dinner with two friends we've had in Wheaton since we've moved here. So they've been our friends for 28 years. He's a philosophy professor at Wheaton College. His wife is a art, art instructor at a uh, classic Christian school, and our kids were raised together. We had their oldest boy and our oldest boy, their second girl, and their second child, and our second child, both girls, their friends as well. Uh, and just we had pulled pork, and we had some wine, and we had just a really good conversation. When when old friends can sh- you know go back and forth between their experiences of many years ago and sharing each other's life it was like I just uh, I just don't have many friends in which I share twenty eight years of experiences with twenty nine years of experiences with and friends it was just... you actually like to talk about life with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> As you confessed earlier. <laughs> And I did share some very personal things with him, and he shared with me, yeah, when our wives were in another part of the room. <laughs> we don't want to do this. We don't want to appear vulnerable in front of it would women. It would be a small group if there were four people. So. <laughs> Mark, where are you able oh, to Oh, yeah. I published something called the Galley Report, uh, which is G-A-L-L-I Report, and you can find it at uh, ChristianityToday.com slash the Galley Report, and I make references to articles like one by uh, Aaron Wren and make comments on it. In fact, my comment on your article got quite a bit of reaction, Aaron. So uh, some, uh, a number of people said amen, and other people said I disagree. But this is, a, as you've noted, it's not something that we have a solution to or even a unified analysis of, but it, everybody recognizes something that needs to be addressed. So, Aaron, do you have a precious moment for us? Yes. So, um, you know, I am 48 years old, and I have a one-year-old son. Oh, my so gosh. I- Someone, yes, I am. Uh, I'm like a, a typical New York family, I guess, like in that regard. And you're, and you're also a, an exhausted 48 year old parent, then. That's right. So, uh, you know, I lived. You know, uh, how I ended up uh, 46 or whatever and uh, childless. I attribute that uh, to uh, two factors. One is my sin, my own sins, and number two is my own stupidity. And so. Uh, <laughs> One of the, uh, you know, as I, I talked about, re- basically rebuilding uh, everything about what I thought it was to be a man and uh, kind of really did a lot of reformulating in my life and said, wow, you know, unlike when I was younger, I said, I'll never want kids. And like, wow, wouldn't it be nice? I, I would love to, 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 you know, to be married, to have children. And maybe I just, you know, the price that I have to pay for, for the way I live my life was that that's not going to happen. But as it turned out, Thanks to the uh, the blessings of God, I was able to get married, and and we had a son nine months and one day later, and he just <laughs> turned one, and so every day is uh, with him is awesome. That's great. Is he your new walking around Central Park, buddy? Yes. Yeah, and Aaron's uh, newsletter on what uh, what women find attractive in men reveals some of these things that he's yeah, talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very interesting newsletter. So again. Yeah. Remind us how we can get the newsletter, please. My, my stuff's hard to find because I'm, I'm really not, wasn't trying to like do a big, you know, promotion. I was really trying to be more of a word of mouth about it. But if you just Google masculinist archives, it'll take you right to my archives and you can pull that up and subscribe. All right. Awesome. Are you on social media? Do you want to tell people if you're on Twitter or anything? Yeah, you can get my Twitter uh, handle is uh, at Urbanophile, the word urban, O-P-H-I-L-E, the lover of cities. Lovely. All right. My precious moment is that I went to Cincinnati on Saturday for the first time, and I thought it was really charming and awesome. 
people that listen to this podcast know that I love baseball and I actually got to see the Giants play in Cincinnati and it was a terrible game. It was really extremely depressing. The Giants were no hit until the seventh inning. So that tells you basically all you need to know that happened. But the rest of the city was fantastic and we road tripped out there and it was also a treat to just, you know, see some elevation, which is a sight for sore eyes when you live in Illinois. Wouldn't you have wanted to see a no hitter though? No, I was cheering for the no hitter at a certain point. I'm like, if you're gonna lose this game, because it was already like seven nothing at that point. It's like if you're gonna lose this game, like can we have a no hitter? And then they broke up the no hitter right afterwards. Yes, I would have been happy with that result too. Yeah, exactly. I would have felt like, man, I'm the luckiest person. I drove all the way out here and I saw a no hitter. All right, people can find me on Twitter at M E P A Y N L. That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. Thank you to everyone who reviews and rates the show on Apple Podcasts podcast is available there and it's also available almost everywhere else you can find a podcast if you want to support the show again you can go to morect.com slash podcast thank you to everyone who does this and it's produced by myself cray allred and richard clark we will see you all next week <laughs>